0: So I'd like to open with a quote. <clears throat> uh, this is a book called Leading God's People, Wisdom from the Early Church for Today. Beautiful little book uh, written by a former professor of early Christianity at Duke Divinity School uh, who left to be a full-time Anglican priest, and so uh, a man with a heart for the church. And He writes this book in order to take the writings of the first four centuries in Christianity and to uh, Basically, plumb those writings for wisdom about pastoral ministry today. What do the church fathers teach us about being pastors today? And then his chapter on Scripture, on how a leader of the church is to interpret Scripture in and for the church, this is what Bealey writes. He says, there are many different ways one can read the Bible, What I'm interested in here is a distinctly Christian way of reading. In this reading, the literal meanings and events in Scripture are applied to Christ, the church, and the growth of the soul toward God. It's a way of reading that leads to transformation and growth in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is precisely the sort of reading that I have been trying to model in our series in Exodus so far. It's a reading not ultimately concerned with historical details or literary technicalities, but with formation in Christ-likeness, growth in love toward both God and the world, now, this kind of reading, as you've seen in my sermons, does require an understanding of the literal surface details of the text read in its context, but it goes further than that, reflecting on the text with an eye toward Christ and the church. So I intend to do just that with our passage for this morning, which is not James chapter 4, verse 8, but Exodus 14 verses 19 through 31. Uh, As you can see, we have skipped a good bit of material. Uh, Last time I preached, we were in Exodus 3, and the Revised Common Lectionary, which we're following, actually has us jump from the commissioning of Moses in chapter 3 to the Passover in chapter 12, and then to our text for this morning. Um, But because we have a guest preacher coming, I had to cut one of the passages out, And so I chose to jump uh, from Moses' commissioning to God's rescue of Israel from the hand of Egypt in chapter 14. Now, rather than starting with reception history like I did last time, I'd like to start with the text in its context, and then we'll move through how it's been received throughout history as we go along. So we're going to open the text together, we'll read it and walk through it. And then note its reception before closing with application. But before we do all of that, friends, let's take a moment to pray. So would you now pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your salvation. A salvation that we see on full display in this story in Exodus freeing the people Israel from captivity in Egypt, parting the Red Sea so they could pass through. But Lord, that is not just some old story. But it's a story that symbolizes your deliverance of us in the present. Deliverance from sin and death, which you bring through the person of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, would you please be present with us this morning, even as we read this old story. Make it our story and help us to feel your saving hand in our lives today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, if you haven't turned there, friends, would you turn with me to Exodus 14? And we will start at verse 19, Um, but like I said, we've skipped a lot of material, so let me set it in its context briefly before we read it. After Moses is commissioned by God, if you read chronologically or the order of Exodus, you'll read about these plagues. And I'm sorry, but I am not preaching any of the plagues, but those are quite famous in the story of Exodus. We have nine plagues from chapters 7 through 10. Uh, and then the tenth plague is a rather significant one, the death of the firstborn. And that is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back, the camel being Pharaoh in this case. But that is the plague that finally convinces Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And so we read about the Passover in chapter 12, this event in which God passed over the households of the Israelites and did not kill the firstborn in their house. And that would begin this centuries-long festival or feast commemorating God's salvation of Israel, the Feast of Passover. Uh, We read about the actual departure of Israel from Egypt, the Exodus proper, and that's in chapter 12. And we see that God is present with his people in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so at the beginning of chapter 14 the people of Israel have headed east from Ramses in Egypt toward a place called Succoth which is in Egypt toward toward the land of Canaan, the promised land. But As they are encamped by the Red Sea, the Egyptians experience a kind of change of mind and they pursue them. And so our passage begins with both camps next to each other by the Red Sea. All right. So Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse 19, and as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night." So, as you'll see in the ESV, at least, there are roughly four sections in this passage. And what I'd like to do is just walk through the passage in its Hebrew literary context, pulling out some important details, and then we will look at how this text has been received in a few passages of Scripture and in the early church. The first section, verses 19 through 20. Um, I think it can come under the heading, God's protective presence. If you read the passage, you'll note that there's all this language of coming before them, standing behind them, standing between them, kind of like musical chairs, uh, footwork happening, and it seems almost redundant. Why are we told this? But I think this language is meant to create this sense of protection, that God is present with his people, moving around, standing in between the people Israel and their enemies, the Egyptians. If he was before them, uh, now he is behind them, and he is moving in order to guard them and keep them safe. You can think of a fight breaking out, uh, and somebody, like an umpire or a moderator, a police officer, somebody standing in between and breaking up the fight. But here it is preemptive. God stands between Israel and the Egyptians before such a fight breaks loose. God is actively concerned with their protection. The next section, verses 21 through 25, features a profound act of grace, where God separates the sea from the dry land—grace, at least, for the people of Israel— We see this language in verse 21, uh, stretching out the hand, then Moses stretched out his hand. And if you go back and read through the whole book of Exodus, you'll see that phrase, stretched out his hand, stretched out his hand. In almost every plague, either Moses or Aaron stretches out the hand, and it's through that act that God brings about the miraculous plague of judgment on Egypt. He would stretch out the hand and the locusts came. He would stretch out the the hand and the hailstorm came, etc. And to reverse the plague, after Pharaoh had pled with Moses and Aaron to, to stop this, to plead with Yahweh to stop it, they would stretch out their hand to reverse it. It's almost like this is really the last plague. The parting of the Red Sea... And then the second stretching out to engulf the Egyptians in it, the 11th plague. The fact that it's spoken of this way, I think, connects it to the plagues which came before. And friends, the first plague, too, had to do with water. The Nile turned to blood. This last plague has to do with water. And the Egyptians would be drowned in this water. So I don't know if it looked like blood, but it's striking, friends, that we see this parallel. You see this idea of separation, separating the sea from the dry land. What does that make you think of in the Bible? Early in Genesis, Genesis 1, God creates, and there's disorder, there's chaos going on, and God orders the disorder. He separates the sea from the dry land, the waters that are above from the waters that are below. God does this kind of separating. He can because he is the creator. And so even though this sea and this land had become kind of mixed in nature, God is the creator and at a moment's notice can separate them. we see this detail of a strong east wind. Every detail is important in biblical narrative, friends. Another place where you see a strong east wind and water is the story of Noah and the flood of judgment upon the earth. And it says, God remembered Noah and his family when they were in the ark and he brought a strong wind. And the wind reversed the flood so that the family of Noah could get out and start afresh, an act of grace. Here we get another act of grace, where the people of Israel are on paradigm with the family of Noah, but it wouldn't be so for the people of Egypt. Moving through this passage, you see that the people of Israel walk through the sea on dry ground. In other words, the waters which symbolize chaos And judgment in the Old Testament do not touch them. But the Egyptians are so hardened by sin, so deluded by it, that this miracle doesn't phase them at all. But they go after them into the parted sea. We read about the horses, the chariots, the the horsemen. Why are we given these details? Well, friends, those phrases often in biblical literature connote earthly power, wealth, prestige in general. I'm sure you've read Psalm 20, which says, some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. So those details are given to show that earthly power and prestige is no match for God the Creator. Even these Wealthy, powerful Egyptians can be engulfed by God's hand at a moment's notice. Well, the last detail I want to draw out in this second section is the morning. In the morning, watch, verse 24. Why are we told this? It's at the rising of the sun, the reversal of the darkness, that God's salvation for Israel happens. If you read through, especially the Old Testament, you'll see that the, the dawn, the, the breaking of day, the sunrise is often accompanied by hope, joy, possibility. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy or hope comes with the morning. Psalm 30. So we get all this symbolic language that is priming us for this grand salvation event. And the people of Israel are walking as it is approaching daybreak. They're walking on dry ground, and the Egyptians are pursuing them. And then we get this third section, verses 26 through 29, where the sea and the land are reunited in an act of judgment upon Israel's enemies. So here we get, stretch out your hand again in verse 26, just like with the plagues where it would reverse the plague. And so Moses stretches out his hand, and God, the creator, who created the sea and the dry land and who separated them, brings them together again. It's like a mirror image of the last section. We get chariots and horsemen again. The waters returned in verse 28 and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The waters of God that God wields in his hand cover all sources of human power and prestige and wealth. And it says that the Egyptians drowned in the sea. You know that Moses was supposed to drown. The Hebrew boys were supposed to be thrown into the waters to be drowned. And Moses was saved, raised in Pharaoh's palace, liberator of Israel. And it turns out that Pharaoh and his household is the one who is drowned. But I want you to be thinking, friends, that this is symbolic of God's victory over all the forces that enslave us and oppress us. We're not to take joy over the literal death of these human beings, these people created in God's image, but we're to see that God is powerful over all of those forces, sin, death, evil, oppression, that enslave us. And while the people of Egypt drowned in the sea, we get a clear statement of contrast, verse 28, but, the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being walls on their right and left. Walls are almost always spoken of as protective barriers. God said he would rescue his people Israel, and he's come through on his promise, friends. And in the last two verses, we get a kind of recapitulation, a summary of the story, which you could ask, why is this necessary? Why is this in here? But I think it reinforces the point that this story is not just to satisfy a historical curiosity, but it's meant to have an impact on its readers, even its earliest Israelite readers. It's meant to convince them where they stand in their present moment that God can save them too. we get the, the purpose of this whole event and the narration of it. In verse 31, this all took place so that Israel could see the great power of the Lord. And I would say the Egyptians saw it too, but couldn't tell the tale. Israel saw the great power of God and that seeing led to a fear of the Lord, reverence, toward the Lord, respect, honor of the Lord, and trust, belief, trust in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This event, which was then captured in a text, was meant to create devotion, reverence, and trust in God's people. And friends, that is still what it is meant to do, even for us. So, I want to look at just a few instances of reception. Uh, first, in Scripture, this idea of God freeing Israel from Egypt and parting the seas is, is all over the Bible, but I want to look at three passages in particular. The first text that represents this material is in Psalm 18, and this is the Psalm of David. And Psalm 18, if you don't know, comes after Psalm 16 and Psalm 17. Um, And those psalms you can title, You Will Not Abandon My Soul, Psalm 16, and then In the Shadow of Your Wings, Psalm 17. So these are psalms that are praising God for his deliverance, salvation from bleak situations. And Psalm 18, at least in the ESV, has the heading, The Lord is my rock and my fortress. And it was written and sung by King David during his uh, time of fleeing from Saul and his minions. And it was written on the day that the Lord saved him from the hand of Saul, uh, which we saw some of those stories in our series in First Samuel. So that is the context of this psalm, and I'd like to just read an excerpt from it. And I want you to think of parallels with our passage in Exodus. This is what David says hundreds of years later. He says, The Lord thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my enemy and brought me into a broad place. For this I will praise you, O Lord. Great salvation he brings to his anointed. Friends, David was not there with the Israelites in Exodus 14, but he speaks as though he was. In other words, David describes his own personal salvation hundreds of years later using the language, the categories of Exodus 14. The second text that I want to look at comes in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 51. And Isaiah does a similar thing in his reading of Exodus 14. This passage comes in the context that speaks of the servant of the Lord, this coming servant, ruler, leader who would bring restoration to Israel. Um, At this point, the southern kingdom, Judah, had been exiled to Babylon And so they're not in captivity in Egypt, but they're in exile in Babylon. And Isaiah is prophesying about their release from exile. This is what he says. Awake, O arm of the Lord, awake! As in days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you who dried up the sea? the waters of the great deep who made in the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over and the ransomed of the lord shall return and come to zion with singing they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away we see this reference to the centuries old event and story of the exodus and then right next to it is this statement about the present salvation of God's people. Isaiah is applying this ancient story of deliverance to the situation of Israel right then and there. And I think he's doing precisely what David was doing before him. One more text. In the New Testament, and it might be one of the most famous references Uh, to allude to this story, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul is writing to a largely Gentile congregation in Corinth and is helping them navigate issues of idolatry. There were pagan temples. People thought they could eat food at these temples, and that was okay. And so Paul is trying to help them navigate that issue. He warns them against idolatry, saying to flee from it. You can't share a table with both Christ and demons, that sort of thing. And in chapter 10, this is an excerpt, but this is what he writes. Our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the rock that followed them, which was Christ. These things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. The Apostle Paul, in the first century, hundreds and hundreds of years, even after Isaiah, is describing the life of the Corinthian believers in the terms set by this story. He's saying that the Corinthians are part of the same group that passed through the Red Sea. Obviously not literally, but he's doing something creative in his Christian reading of this text. And friends, if we are to follow Paul, this means that we as Christians are part of that group as well. It means that the Exodus, in a way, is our story too. Well, briefly, I just I want to look at the way in which early Christians and some medieval Christians read Exodus. Uh, many in the early church viewed this story, the passing through the sea, as a type, a figure of baptism, Christian baptism, which you see in First Corinthians ten. You can think of Origen, famous uh, interpreter in Alexandria, Tertullian Ambrose. Uh, Gregory the Great actually writes, The defeat of the Egyptians is a picture of the need to drown in the waters of baptism the sins of greed, pride, and anger which besiege the Christian soul. Another famous preacher, John Chrysostom, compares this freedom from Egypt, which Israel experienced, with the freedom from sin and death that Christians experience. In the medieval period, uh, some Christian writers saw this battle between God and the Egyptians, the sea and the Egyptians, as symbolic of the spiritual battle that we wage on a daily basis. And John Calvin sees in Exodus 14, for Reformation interpreters, an example of God's power and grace toward his people in any and all situations of bondage or oppression. So looking at the way this text has been read from King David all the way to John Calvin, I think we see a pretty common pattern. The Exodus story signifies God's salvation power in all situations, friends. Deliverance from Saul and his soldiers, release from Babylonian exile, freedom from sin and death. This is how the text has been read for nearly 3,000 years. What this means is the story of the Exodus is not meant to satisfy our historical curiosity about ancient Egyptians and what happened to them. It's meant to assure us of God's deliverance from any and all situations of darkness. For Christians, it's not necessarily about release from physical taskmasters, although it could be but primarily it's about our deliverance from the power of sin and death, which God has brought about through Jesus Christ. Friends, the Exodus then is our story. To return to my opening message in the series, we are enslaved by sin, and like the Israelites, we need deliverance. And none of this detracts from the original event narrated in Exodus, that event needs to be important for this other event for its significance to hold. But as Christians reading the story today, I want you to make Exodus your story. I want you to look at the forces in your life which try to pull you away from Jesus And I want you to view them as pursuing Egyptians. Then I want you to picture God as a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, who stands in between you and those forces, moving around to make sure he's between. And then, as God leads you into this turbulent, chaotic sea, circumstances in life that are bewildering and scary, I want you to trust him. And see the ground dry, dry beneath your feet. Friends, this is how Christians have been reading Exodus 14 for 2,000 years, and I can think of no reason to read it any differently today. Let me close with this. Our God is and always has been a God of deliverance from whatever evil, whatever darkness we may face. This morning, friends, let God deliver you. As he delivered Israel long ago, let Jesus lead you home. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this story, for helping us to make it our own. You are a God who delivers us from the turbulent waters even today. Paul knew what he was saying when he said that we were with the Israelites in the wilderness. We're still with them, journeying, wandering. Help us, Lord, to allow you, the pillar of cloud and fire, to guide us through the wilderness that is our lives, safely toward your promised land, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to bring others along on this journey, others who are not on it yet. Please bless us as a church, especially as we seek to show this community your love this weekend. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.